Uh, my wife took a picture of me and, uh, for one of her critiques, and they referred to me as a Mexican gangster. And what that tells me is that, that I didn't belong here. It kind of put a chip on my shoulder the whole time, and it made me never leave studio and work twice as hard because I felt like I needed to get this face, more of these faces in, in ceramics, in the art world. I don't just want to be the artist, but I want to be the focal point of it, not so much as I'm vain. If anything, I'm really insecure, but more so because I think that uh, it's important to have faces like mine in, in art and in the art world. Hi, this is Libby, and this is Roberta, and this is Art Blog Radio. That was Roberto Lugo speaking. Roberto Lugo grew up in Philadelphia in the neighborhood where graffiti and street art played a big part in how the world looked. His aesthetic sensibility was influenced by that milieu, and so was his feeling that art is for everyone. Getting out of the neighborhood and making art in school led him to believe that art can save you. We're talking with Lugo today at Crane Arts, where we are surrounded by his wonderful ceramic vessels, which were part of the Juvenile Injustice exhibit. So, your pots look like they take so much work. They're so decorated. How long does it take you to make one? Well, it depends. I have a, a series of some uh, more production-type work, um, and I wanted to introduce that into the show, so some of the cups that I, you see here, um, I can throw, you know, 40 cups in one day, but uh, I did a residency for the last two summers in Hungary, um, and that's where they uh, have Heron Porcelain, um, and Heron is a company that makes uh, porcelain works for kings, so they even made Victoria, uh, Queen Victoria's dishes and Prince William's dishes that just got married. And so I got to go through this factory and uh, see the work that was being done. And some of it was commissions being done for sultans and kings and seeing these portraits uh, that these master painters were putting on these pots kind of said to me that I need to take a lot more time with my work. So some of these works may take uh, you know a month to complete. And then some of the works are just something that I'm able to do, It'll be a little bit more instinctual with. Your face, your own face, is on a lot of these portraits, and mm -hmm. it seems to me that's a rather unusual thing to put on ceramics. And can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, definitely. I think that um, the way that my face came into play was this idea of I, I began as a graffiti artist, and um, I thought of graffiti uh, now as this way of overcoming the fact that I didn't have any art classes. So when people don't have art classes, they do graffiti. When people don't have music classes, they rap in their cafeteria, and they bang on the tables as they're, they're drummers. And uh, there's this culture, this hip-hop culture, where getting your face out there or being confident, even maybe a fake sense of confidence, is really um, important. So rappers are always talking themselves up. And I thought about how when I started to make ceramics, there's the direct relationship with me actually putting graffiti on the pot, but how can I get that same type of, um, that same type of emotion um, onto a ceramic vessel? And I thought by putting my face on it, it's almost in a way vandalizing um, the history of you know, only the, the best people in the world being able to have their face on, on the work, or the, the most rich people. Um, so by me being able to put my face in the work, I feel like I overcome a lot of those barriers. That's cool. How about, let's talk now about some of the other things, the motifs, the design motifs that appear on the, on the vessels, because they come from gang colors. Is that right? Why, yes. why do you use them? 
Well, uh, it started when I was uh, when I was a teenager, and I would see in the 90s there was a lot of uh, violence between the gangs, the Bloods, and the Crips. And the Bloods generally will wear a red scarf or bandana, and the Crips will wear blue. And um, this became almost a universal symbol uh, to many people of, of gangs. Even more importantly than that, if you're a minority and wear these colors, sometimes people will look at you as though you're dangerous. Um, so when I make a lot of this work, it's really personal for me. But in that, when I'm talking to different cultures, I have to do a lot of explaining. And I wanted to figure out more universal symbols that would tell people, you know, hey, there's a little bit more depth to this. You know, there's, a, there's the bandana color, but what does it really mean when it's on a minority? So in some of these pots, it'll have someone who is... Um, you know, who wears a bandana in a different way. So, you know, if my wife, for example, wears a, uh, my wife is Caucasian. If she wears a, a blue bandana, she, people will confuse her with a country girl. I'm like, oh, that's a really country thing to do. But then if I wear a bandana, you know, and I'm walking in the street and you see me at night, you're like, I probably should walk on the other side of the street. I kind of wanted to confront that through pottery. And so what is your own relationship to gang culture? Well, you know, uh, growing up here in Philadelphia, uh, we didn't have uh, a lot of, per se, gangs like the Bloods and Crips. But um, um, in a certain part of Kensington, there was a gang called Whites Taking Over. They cracked my brother's head open with a 40-ounce bottle um, because he was just in the wrong car at the wrong time. And uh, then there was a Kensington ghetto posse, and it all had to do with what neighborhood you were in as opposed to, you know, other factors. Um, so me personally, um, you know, I grew up in probably one of the most poor neighborhoods in Philadelphia, but at the same time I was also, you know, one of the poorest kids in that neighborhood. It was a really difficult thing to, to deal with growing up, and uh, many of the things I was confronted with were a lot of choices, and a lot of those choices were, should I, instead of being poor and not having food or not having a way to help my mom, should I sell drugs, you know, should I rob people? And um, it was almost the easier choice to make to do those things um, and be able to make a living so you can be like the rest of the cool kids and get the really nice car, the stereo system. So talk about your rise from what you just explained to us as being in the ghetto and surrounded by the gang culture and whatnot into a life of art. When did, Were you always drawing as a kid after you did graffiti or during the same time you were doing graffiti? And how did you translate that into ceramics? Yeah, looking back, I feel as though I, I I was always an artist. I was always this real outcast. I didn't fit in with with my cousins. There was a lot of male cousins, and graffiti was actually the way of me trying to be as cool as they were. Um, I was always the really awkward kid. So in many ways, I was I was an eccentric, and I didn't really have anybody that related to me at all. So I just thought I was weird. So growing up, I didn't um, I made art, but I didn't realize or, or token it as something that was art. I just kind of did it anyway. Um, I didn't see my life going anywhere, so I lived here for the first 22 years of my life, and I had absolutely nothing to my name. Um, and I just made a choice at some point to move away, and I moved to Florida because I had a cousin that lived there. And then after a few years of working, I said, I want to go to college for something. I don't know what. And um, I walked into a school, and one of the first classes that was in the, in the, the book was a, a class on um, design fundamentals, which was really an introductory art class. And I met a potter there, and he said, you should try the potter's wheel. And um, I met my wife in that class, and ever since I've been obsessed, uh, potters and, and graffiti artists actually have a lot in common. There's this 
um, being productive. You know, graffiti artists constantly want to tag and get their name out there. And potters, in order to feel as though you're productive in any way, we make a lot of work. There's this constant um, need to make. And, you know, for example, my day, I, I probably put in a good 14 to 15 hours a day of just making art. Um, and, and that drive, I think, is, uh, it all comes from being here, knowing what it's like to be without. And it not just, it's not just a financial currency, but a soulful currency where I get so much out of being an artist and being able to travel different places and talk to people about my work and their work and understand a little bit about why, why I grew up and, and, you know, where I did. And a lot of it, I feel as though, has to do with this, uh, you know, falling into what everyone else before you did. And uh, for someone that lives in the ghetto, that's usually, you know, not on the positive side, so... Wow. Do you, what what do your family members think of your art? Are they aware of what you're doing? Um, well, my my mother and father, um, I, I, I like to say in many ways, my art saved my family because my mother and father were separated when I was um, before I even I was a teenager, and my father came to visit me, and uh, I hadn't talked to him really for about eight years, and when he visited me, he saw me making art, and he decided to build me an art studio. And me and my dad developed our relationship again, and my mom and him got back together, and they live in Florida now. But uh, they've always been really supportive of me as a person because they understand that anything other than me being dead or in prison is a real plus. And then now me being able to tell all of our story because that's really what my work is about. Um, so uh, art is also allowing me to uh, develop a relationship with my cousins. Um, a few of them came to the opening, and they'd never seen anything that I made before. And I had cups and things for them here, gifts. And um, we've really just started uh, developing a relationship that I haven't had with them for, God knows, close to 20 years now. So it's a really great thing. How old are you? I'm 32. You sold a lot of this work. Yeah. Um, what percentage did you sell? I've never seen this many red dots. I probably sold close to 90%, I think, of the work that's here. And uh, for me, the way that I look at that is I don't, I don't necessarily measure my success in sales because I feel as though, um, you know, in order for me, this work, to have any relevance or truth to it, I have to be hungry. And I can make the work to talk about these things for the rest of my life, and I'll, I think I still won't be fed. So you're in school now at Penn State getting your MFA. Do you have a thought of the future? Um, it sounds like you're a born teacher. I mean, everything that's come out of your mouth sounds very inspiring and like something that young people would love to hear and that you could mentor them. Are you thinking about teaching as a career? Yes, I am. Um, one of the things you hear a lot about today, though, is how how difficult it is to get a teaching job, especially as an artist. But I've currently I've applied for 25 different positions, a few of them here in Philadelphia, because I'm really anxious to be able to get back in the city. But I have my heart set right now on a residency. I'm applying to the Clay Studio in Philadelphia, as well as the Archie Bray uh, Ceramics Foundation in, in Montana. At just getting gaining technical skills and learning more about what I'm doing so that therefore, yeah, I can be a better teacher, but also um, I just feel it's important today to, for me, if I'm going to be and say that I'm a craftsman, to develop my craft as best as I can, spend the rest of my life trying to do that. And then um, I actually get to teach classes in Penn State, which is one of the real pluses of it. I feel like teaching for me is necessary in order for me to even grow as an artist. So I, I can't do one without the other now. 
So you said something that interests me, and I think it sort of relates to your two worlds thing, although a different angle on it. You said that you're involved in an art form that you're not supposed to be involved in. Yeah, and um, I might get in a lot of trouble for this, but... Um, <laughs> with whom? <you> know, <laughs> well, with, with the ceramics community. Ceramics community is a very tight-knit community. Uh, being a Puerto Rican man, a lot of people see me as, as, as black, and I embrace that. I have African in my blood. I'm Puerto Rican. We're African, um, Indian, and Spanish, so we're three. And uh, I look at, there's this really wonderful thing you could be a part of as a ceramic artist, and it's called Art Access. And it's this page you have to apply to, and you look at all these artists that are doing really great things today. The other day I was looking through there to see if I can find any other African-American or anyone else that wasn't Caucasian. And there were a few Chinese people, but there weren't very many. And through my education, I haven't found very many minorities. And when I was in Kansas City, I actually ran into the first few weeks I lived there. People, you know, hey, do you belong here? Are you looking for someone? You know, and uh, my wife took a picture of me and, uh, for one of her critiques, and they referred to me as a Mexican gangster. And what that tells me is that, um, in many ways, that I didn't belong here. And um, it kind of put a chip on my shoulder the whole time, and it made me never leave studio and work twice as hard because I felt like I needed to get this face, more of these faces in, in ceramics, in the art world. And that might be even more of a direct relationship of why I put my face in the pots because I don't just want to be the artist but I want to be the focal point of it not not so much as I'm vain if anything I'm really insecure but more so because I think that uh it's important to have faces like mine in, in art and in the art world. Can you talk a little bit about your choices of materials? Yes um well, a lot of times I use porcelain, which is a really, you know, white clay. And um, I like the contrast that porcelain gives. And if you think about graffiti, a lot of times people will go out to a wall and they'll paint it white first. You know, even if it's a real runny white, and then they'll paint over that because it makes the colors pop. And uh, when I went to Heron, I got to do this residency in Heron. And as I said, when I was looking at these dishes for, you know, royalty, all of it was white. And it made me think of, you know, how great it would be to put, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, black images on white. Not as a, a statement of um, my, pow my power over white, but more of integration of both of those. You know, and I, I constantly think back of uh, Martin Luther King's speech because I heard it so much growing up. That was one thing we heard every Black History Month was I had a dream of, you know, little, you know, black boys and white girls, you know, playing together and um, in a lot of ways I look at my pots as you know little black boys and white girls playing together. So um, your work is also playful it's not just it's serious but it's playful can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah I think that um, humor is such a huge way to, to draw people in and um, so I think a lot of work today that's being done really well is has a, a tone of, of humor in it I think of Kehundi Wiley's paintings with having, you know, an African-American man on a horse in the same way that a king would be. And that's funny, but it's also serious, you know. And uh, so I have a lot of weight issues, not only with, with uh, class division um, being raised, but also I've been, I've been obese pretty much my whole life. And um, that's really funny to a lot of people um, when they look at you. They think, oh, that guy's sweater doesn't fit, you know, his belly shows out of the bottom or... Um, you know, I wonder what he eats. He must just eat donuts, you know. So <clears throat> there's this uh, instantaneous stereotype 
that in some ways you're stupid when someone sees you and you're fat. So um, to kind of talk a little bit about that, I have a piece over there called Donut Face. And um, what I was thinking about was blackface. When It's funny, but it's serious. And um, that's what's really, uh, you know, usually I don't just make something just to be funny. I do something because I go through it. And uh, what that reminds me of is a poetry professor once told me when I was in his class, and he was really, he said, there's no good artwork that's being made today. And he said, the only thing that I've ever seen that was really good was these African spoons in a museum. And he said, the reason why is because those people didn't need to to decorate these pieces. They did it because of the love for it. It was, it was true. And he says, if you ever write anything, if you write anything that's not true, that's something you've experienced in your life, then people can tell. Um, so everything that I try to make, whether it's the marks that I make on my, my pots or the subject matter, it usually always relates to a specific story in my life. I feel like, you know, humor as well as being serious kind of go hand in hand. Thank you. We've been speaking with Roberto Lugo today at Crane Arts, where he had a wonderful show of his ceramics. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.